Hi folks, Ken Weinstein here. Lisa Monaco was out again this week, so I sat down for a conversation with an old friend, Matt Olson. Matt served as the director of the National Counterterrorism Center from 2011 to 2014. Before that, he held a number of roles within the Justice Department, including serving as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the department's National Security Division. Matt joined me to discuss how he got started in national security law, his time leading the Guantanamo Review Task Force, and what it's like to be part of a presidential transition. Every other week, Lisa Monaco and I break down national security issues on the United Security Podcast. Today, we are sharing a clip with listeners of Stay Tuned with Preet. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. College students with a valid.edu email qualify for a discount at cafe.com slash student. That's cafe.com slash student. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. One of the biggest issues on the on the plate for President Obama and the new team was uh, Guantanamo and what to do with the detainees there in the detention facility. In fact, if if you recall, Ken, it was a day one executive order for President Obama to close Guantanamo uh, detention facility in one year. So, in sort of in need of a of a good job, I uh, I put my hand up to help work on that. And yeah, I was I was asked by the new Attorney General Eric Holder to uh, sort of be his representative and to lead a task force, an interagency task force, to review all of the cases of, at that time, 240 detainees who were detained at, at Guantanamo and figure out what we're going to do with them. You know, what's the what's the next step or next, what's the disposition for those individuals, given that the options were not great, you know, at that point. And Ken, you know this better than anyone because you worked on this at the end of the the Bush years, you know, how hard it it was because there were hundreds of detainees who had been at Guantanamo by the time President Obama came into office who had been released, transferred home. So we were down to 240 who you, at that point, the the government had struggled really to figure out if we're going to keep them detained or release them. Yeah, just to, just to preview what you ended up uh, getting in your lap, you know, toward the end of the 2008, I spent a lot of my time when I was Homeland Security Advisor working with the authorities in Saudi Arabia and Yemen to try to repatriate the 90-odd Yemenis that, that were in Guantanamo. That was the biggest ethnic group that we had were all the Yemenis. And the problem was the Yemeni uh, government didn't have the facilities to, to house them. So we were trying to broker something with the Saudis, thought we had a, had something arranged, and then, of course, it fell apart at the last minute. And so... Yeah, you ended up getting, was it 240 or inheriting 240 DTNEs with the transition from the Bush to the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, it was a tough nut to crack to try to find a place where those people could go, where we could ensure that they wouldn't return to terrorism and pose a threat to us. But at the same time, try to deal with this uh, the situation in Guantanamo, which everybody recognized was not sustainable ultimately. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, they're one of the, you know, at the time that I took on this role, there had been a pretty strong consensus, political consensus, and just sort of, 
you know, within the government, within the executive branch that, as you said, Ken, it was not sustainable to continue just to hold individuals at Guantanamo uh, indefinitely, that there needed to be some solution that would involve prosecuting some of them, transferring uh, some number, in some cases, to countries that were not their home countries. And then maybe, you know, there may be some number that would have to be continued to be held under the laws of war, which was the legal basis for detention for some period of time. But there was a general, I think, as I said, consensus that this was a path that we needed to take as a country. So you undertook to review the files of all the 240-odd detainees that uh, were still there um, and then came up with dispositions for each of them. And then by the end of the your time on that project, you got the number down significantly, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by, you know, the, it's funny. I, let me just take a step back. As you, you said, you know, take the files and review the files. There, there were no real files. Like there were, there was information spread out across the government on the detainees generally. Like a lot of it was at the defense department, but a lot of it was in the intelligence agencies, the justice department, other, you know, state department. It, it started, the whole process started with trying to pull together information on who were these 240 individuals who could we safely transfer back to their home country? Who could we send to a third-party country where we might have concerns about repatriation? Because in some cases, some of the detainees would be subject to persecution if they went to their home country. The, the Uyghurs in China were a very good example of that. In some cases, we were going to look to prosecute detainees. Uh, and there were actual ongoing criminal investigations in, you know, in the, within the Justice Department of some of them. And uh, we had the view that there could be more of those and they could be prosecuted in the United States or in the military commission that had been set up at Guantanamo. And as I said, then a number where we thought we were concerned we may have to be held because they couldn't be transferred safely or or prosecuted. So yeah, we started with 240. Uh, we, we transferred out a, a fair number, but the, you know, at this stage, I, I checked the other day, there's only 40 detainees left at, at Guantanamo. So it's really a very a relatively small number of individuals. And so I think I know there was a big push at the end of the Obama administration to move out as many as possible. And I think you'll see continued effort on this uh, going forward. Okay. So after that, you then get the nod to go over and be the general counsel at the National Security Agency, where you're the, the chief lawyer at the NSA that is uh, just out uh, out in Maryland and uh, is a, um, a member of the intelligence community. So why don't you just give us a couple of minutes on, about sort of what your role was out there what the challenges were of being a lawyer in a, in an intelligence agency like the NSA and how that's different from being a lawyer in DOJ, which is a culture a department and culture, all of lawyers. Yeah. So that's a great question. And, and, you know, first that's the main difference that you put your finger on it. I, I went from an organization where it was all about being a lawyer. The organization existed because of lawyers, that's the Department of Justice, to an organization, a vast organization, the National Security Agency, made up of computer scientists and mathematicians and analysts, a, a totally different set of skills with a small legal office that I, that I oversaw of about 100 lawyers, whose job it was, you know, fundamentally to make sure that everything the NSA did was consistent with, with the laws of the United States. And it was you know, at first I wasn't sure if we were going to be sort of looked at as maybe like the adversary within the walls of the NSA, because there's going to be times when as a lawyer, as the general counsel, I'd have to tell the director of NSA or others, you know, no, you can't do this because it, it would, you know, be contrary to what the law requires. 
but the opposite was actually true. Uh, the culture of NSA is one of like profound rule, adherence to rules and desire to stay on the right side of the law and the, and the rules. And so my job I often found was more trying to be clear about explaining what the laws were so that people could follow them and, and having to do that honestly in, a, in an environment, uh, a legal environment, where sometimes the law is not that clear. As we talked about with FISA, you know, there are times when the law, you know, you can, it, it's subject to interpretation or it's actually changing, you know, it could be quite dynamic, you know, so what it meant, you know, a year ago might be different next year. So, you know, I, I found the hardest part was uh, talking to operators at the NSA who say, hey, you know, just tell me where the line is. I'll make sure I stay on the right side of the line. And, you know, that's all I want to know. And I'd have to sometimes give less than uh, definitive answers to that question. And that I think that's part of the challenge of being a lawyer in an intelligence agency. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Um, and I think people who've spent time dealing with legal issues in the intelligence context uh, grow to value clarity, that what operators really want is they just want to know where the line is. Less concerned with, you know, what latitude that line allows them. They just want to know what the, where the line is. And when there's the there's either an absence of a line or the line is blurred or hard to place, that, that actually causes them to be cautious and to sort of step back from the whole range of where that line might be, which is bad for national security, right? You don't want them going over the line. That's bad for, you know, constitutional concerns and people's privacy and civil liberties. But you also don't want them staying way shy of the line because that's going to means there's a whole range of activity that could be helpful to national security that they're not undertaking. And that um, that's what happens when the law isn't clear. That's some of that is just inherent in the application of law to national security operations and the vagaries of national security operations. But some of it is also the fault of legislation and rules. And that's, as we said earlier, one of the things we were dealing with with FISA, one of the problems, one of the reasons why that example you used where, you know, we might have to get a FISA to surveil somebody who's a foreign person in a foreign country who's communicating with another foreign person in another foreign country, we would have to still go to the FISA court. That's because the law wasn't clear enough. And so there are real life consequences to that lack of clarity. And so I, I see how that you would have that special challenge when you're the one who's across the table from the operators who are saying they need to do something for national security and they want to know exactly what they can do and can't do. And tough position to be in. That's why you need experienced people in those jobs. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And I, you know, I've talked a lot of to a lot of attorneys in uh in the national security agencies over the years. And this is a common, uh, a common challenge. I mean, it's actually, it can be really rewarding. I, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that I found to be useful was to consider yourself as a lawyer, as part of a team, you know, you're on the team with the operators, with the leaders of the organization, you, you're, you share a common set of objectives. You bring a certain discipline, to the discussion and a certain ability to contribute around, okay, here's, here's my assessment of where that line is, what you can do. You know, there's a, there's a risk to saying, no, you can't do it. And, and just putting down a firm line if there's some room, but, and there's obviously of course a risk. If you say, yes, you can take a certain action if it's close to the line. So, you know, being, having strong sense of collaboration with the operators. So they're also very trustful of you and open with you about what they're, you know, exactly the activity they're going to engage in. I mean, I felt like that was a way to sort of um, 
reconcile this tension where you really are having to be as clear as possible in a, in a landscape that is often sort of murky when it comes to cutting edge national security activities. Yeah, I think the team analogy is is just the right one because you and the operators want the same things, right? You want to facilitate whatever steps can be taken to ensure national security, but at the same time, you don't want to be going across the line. And uh, and that's the right mindset to have on both on both sides, both on the operator side and the lawyer side, that you're all part of the same team with the same objective. So let's let's uh, let's jump over to your last post in government and just sort of quickly address the National Counterterrorism Center. You were nominated and confirmed as the director of, the, of NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center. That is a new creation. Um, just take a minute, tell us sort of where the NCTC came from, what its purpose was. I hope you've enjoyed this sample from the United Security Podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid.edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.